Welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. And we are now on our penultimate episode in this mini-series exploring Young's answer to Job. We continue with our questions. First, why is there no real history or sociology or political science in Young's work? Response. Materialist analysis did not interest Young. Even events like World War I were interpreted in mythological terms mixed with archetypal psychology. Thus, for example, the Wotan archetype plus a theory of the collective shadow was Jung's explanation for the dark events in Germany that he witnessed. With respect to the Jewish apocalyptic literature, he makes no reference to the history of the Jews in answer to Job. For him, this literature signifies that God is coming closer into humanity with his dark as well as his light side. It's as if the explanation for these events lies in the heavens, in metaphysics, in the contradictions of God, whereas a materialist analysis would see it in the historical reality of the Jewish people, confronting surrounding empires which are threatening to annihilate them. Young, of course, knew of theories of history, economics, political science, sociology and the like, but they carried no conviction for him. These theories belonged to the surface level of consciousness. They were superficial. Rather, he believed that the motivating factors lay in the unconscious of the Germanic peoples. In a 1936 essay on Wotan, while contemplating the rise of Nazism, he commented, quote, We are convinced the modern world is a rational place and that we base this opinion that it is so on political, economic and psychological factors. In fact, I venture the heretical suggestion that the unfathomable depths of Wotan's character explain more of national socialism than all three reasonable factors put together. Unquote. That's from the Collective Works, Volume 10. The three factors being the political, economic and psychological. So the answer to the question why standard theories played no part in Jung's analysis is simply that he thought they were surface phenomena and he did not believe in them. Moreover, he suggested other disturbing original explanations based on the idea of the collective unconscious and its archetypes. Next question. What historical explanation could be offered for the apocalyptical literature? Response. Now, as I've indicated, this is not in the answer to Job. But does it exist at all? Well, yes, there's plenty of historical explanations. Here's one. The book of Revelation itself was written around 96 AD, a short time after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, a major catastrophe for the Jews. This was in the middle of three Roman-Jewish wars, which lasted from 66 AD to 135 AD, in which around 2 million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans. Imagine the trauma. Besides the immense loss of life, Jewish culture in Palestine and Judea were practically eliminated. The temple destroyed and the Romans eventually cleared the Near East of the Jewish presence, resulting in yet another diaspora, this time far more decisive than previous ones. In my view, it's impossible to look at any of the Jewish Christian literature of the time, such as the Book of Revelation, without reference to these events. John of Patmos was writing 
revelation, let's call it, right in the middle of these wars with Rome. He was exiled to the rocky island of Patmos by the emperor Domitian in a persecution campaign against the Christians. He was then a prisoner of the Roman state. Most prisoners on Patmos were sent to work in the mines. Perhaps his advanced age saved him. At any rate, he began to have visions and hear voices, which he wrote down and these became the basis of his book. Given the scale of the slaughter of the Jews, the savagery of the wars, the destruction of Jewish life and culture at so many levels, as well as John's personal suffering, it is understandable that these events could be interpreted in apocalyptic terms. It would have been natural to look back at the history of one's people, documented in the Bible, and see similar events. For example, their exile into the lands of Egypt at the time of Moses, 13 centuries before Christ. Their exile into Assyria, time of Isaiah, 740 years before Christ. And later to Babylonia, after the first destruction of the temple in 586 BC. The book of Ezekiel, which has significant apocalyptic references, arose within this exile period in Babylon. What is well known from a reading of the Bible is that the Jewish prophets often blame these terrible events on the people and or their kings themselves for whatever happened to the chosen people. So, if they were defeated in war and carried off to Babylon, then they must have offended God who was punishing them. They should repent, reform and re-establish the broken covenant. The opposite narrative of their enemies being destroyed and their cities annihilated is also common. Revenge fantasies abound in defeated nations. Revelation chapter 18 says, quote, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, unquote. Babylon is code for Rome by the time of John in 96 AD. Apocalyptical literature, then, can be understood as a response to historical trauma in the Jewish people and in any people. Marginalised, alienated, defeated and vanquished peoples are the desperate and fertile breeding ground for apocalyptic and eschatological fantasies, that is, end-of-world fantasies, as argued so well by Norman Cohn in his brilliant 1957 book, The Pursuit of the Millennium, Revolutionary Millenarians and Mystical Anarchists of the Middle Ages. In general, this apocalyptic literature arises from groups that have been marginalised and deeply alienated, who seek both explanation and revenge, if not in reality, then at least in metaphysical fantasy. Next question. How unusual is Jung's interpretation? Response. There have been many interpretations of the Book of Job and even more of the Apocalypse. Jung's interpretation is perhaps the most unusual of all. It's probably the most difficult to understand also, even for seasoned Jungian analysts. To the best of my knowledge, no one else has suggested that God is a contradiction in terms and needs humanity to sort things out. That God's contradictions are even responsible for the creation of the world that God is totally unjust with Job and therefore by implication with humanity. 
that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is an attempt by God to make up for the injustice done to humanity. That God wants to become one with humanity, but not quite. And similarly, the unconscious wants to flow into the light, but again, not quite. That the apocalypse is the dark side of God. That Christianity, by insisting on the light and the good, pushes divine darkness into a split-off figure, Satan or the devil. And human negativity is split off into the shadow, where they inevitably return with extra force, depending on the strength of the repression. These are radical and very unusual theoretical positions of Jung and provoked a storm of opposition and indignation. Yet, the fascination with these interpretations remains. In addition, since he argues them so persuasively, then he obliges the thoughtful audience to dig deep and reconsider their points of view. Next question. In which ways does Jung present God in answer to Job? I posed this question in the last podcast, but it needed a more full answer. Here are some of the different viewpoints. 1. God is a personality, especially Yahweh the tribal lord or nature god. Admittedly, the book of Job in the Bible does the same, so Young is following that lead. 2. God is a mixture of opposites, who therefore appears contradictory, for example, as both just and unjust. 3. God as complexio oppositorum. Here Young suggests that Yahweh is not simply a confusion of opposites, like human beings tend to be, but is a totality of opposites, and therefore is complete and is not reduced to being one-sided. Admittedly, this is a complex philosophical point, but it's a good one. 4. Yahweh as lacking discriminatory moral consciousness. Therefore Job or humanity have an advantage over him, despite all his immense power. 5. God is a phenomenon or force of nature. Here Young tries to escape the limitations of simply viewing Yahweh as a personality. 6. God is presented as a male. Preferred pronouns are he and his, usually capitalised. Never they. Again, Young is taking the lead from the Bible. Male has been God's default gender for most of the world's religions for the last couple of thousand years. To be fair, Young was one of the first for a very long time to hold and defend the Gnostic position that the lost feminine was a major problem for these religions of the Near East and the West. 7. Yahweh is primitive and over-masculine. He therefore lacks a female consort, Sophia, the goddess of wisdom. Young very much takes the Gnostic position on this, that the feminine is missed out or repressed in the Jewish religion. So in this respect, Yahweh is incomplete. 8. God as the archetype of the totality. God as everything rather than being a specific particular. That God is the evolving totality of the universe. 9. God is identified with the unconscious and manifests in the human psyche through the unconscious. In this regard, it is better to refer to the God image, the numinous imago, or archetypal image, that surfaces into human awareness from the deep psyche. 
from the unconscious. 10. God as not independent, but needing human consciousness. Similarly, Young suggests that the unconscious needs consciousness. These are also opposites, and there is a tension between them, but also a resistance. Aniela Jaffe, who wrote Young's biography with him and closely followed his thought, wrote, quote, In religious language, an image of a god who seeks man just as much that he is sought by man. God seeks the individual in order to realise himself in his soul and his life. Expressed psychologically, the self requires the ego personality in order to manifest itself. The ego personality requires the self as the origin of its life and fate. In religious language, this means God needs man just as man needs God. Unquote. 11. God is the archetype of the self rather than the totality. Towards the end of Answer to Job, Jung switches position and says that it is empirically demonstrable that the God image is the central archetype which integrates other archetypes and components of the psyche. He calls this the archetype of the self. But you can see the spiritual religious implication of this. If the archetype of the self and the archetype of the God image are the same, then the God archetype is the core of the self. 12. Jesus Christ as an embodiment of the spiritual hero myth and therefore archetypally destined to die and be reborn. Young mentions this twice in the text of Answer to Job. Again, this would shock traditional Christian believers for whom Christ is an absolute and not a relative phenomenon of history. Christ is unique and not just another hero myth. The advantage of such a view, however, is that it adds a completely new layer to our understanding of Christ and puts him in mythological context and therefore, with archetypal psychology, makes him psychologically available. However, it is difficult to reconcile Christ as hero myth with the other perceptions of the God images presented by Jung and indeed by the Christian Church. 13. Jung ends answer to Job referring to the abysms of the earth and the vastness of the sky. These are metaphors for experiences of God. Here he is referring to the God image as a transcendental phenomenon, ultimately beyond human comprehension, a borderline phenomena, as he calls it, that is, at the limits of consciousness. Consciousness eventually surrenders in attempts at comprehension when confronted with the numinosity of the God image, that is, its awesome, sacred and ultimately unfathomable nature. Next question. Does the theory of evolution change all Bible studies, including this one? Response. The theory of evolution changes any literal interpretation of the Bible or any sacred text. The Hindus are one of the few who have been able to accommodate theory of evolution into their metaphysics. Young is quite aware of the theory of evolution. The same applies to most of his students and followers. For them, it made no difference to Young's argument because evolution is creation in the long run, as it was for Teilhard de Chardin 
and Sri Aurobindo. Also, for Jungians, the Bible is immersed in mythology, and therefore it is symbolically rather than literally true. For example, you may remember that in the text of Answer to Job, Jung said it was irrelevant that the assumption of the Virgin Mary or the virgin birth of Jesus Christ were physically impossible. It's their psychological truth that matters. An implication of this is that it matters not whether one believes in evolution or a literal creation story, or whether one believes in God or not, because the forces that brought human consciousness into existence, call them evolution, call them God, call them what one wants, have the opposites of good and evil as the templates of our consciousness. It's still our task to resolve these opposites. This means that Jung is well aware that the whole narrative of Yahweh and the chosen people in the Bible is symbolic. It is the way the consciousness of a particular people, in this case the Jews, has framed this complex question of mankind's relationship to creation. Jung found it difficult to say this directly 70 years ago, perhaps influenced by all those pastors in his family all those pious people in the church in Switzerland. He tried his best to explain that the symbolic was more true than the literal, but this is a difficult point to grasp. So, even when we realise that all these mythologies are symbolic, we still have the opposites as the template of our consciousness, and this inexorably leads us to the apocalypse of modern times, since the demonic and the divine are within us. Again, treat these words as symbols. Human consciousness has an immense capacity for creativity and destruction, and this problem of opposites needs resolving. As Jung insisted throughout his life, it's only by integrating the demonic or the darkness within us that we can accomplish this. By integrating, I mean not by living it out, but by becoming conscious of it. If we were to imitate the ancient Greeks, we would make gods of these forces, these archetypes. And with respect to our negativity and darkness, we would portray it as an archetype or as a god that is an immensely powerful force that unrecognised can destroy us, but integrated into the temple of consciousness can be our salvation. Next question. How can God be the totality and at the same time be a specific component of the unconscious? Throughout most of Answer to Job, Jung's position is that God is the totality and therefore combines both dark and light, creation and destruction, good and evil and so on. He defends this point quite rigorously, pointing to the difficulties of the Christian and Jewish position, which tend to look at God as all good and aim for perfection rather than wholeness. He claims it is not possible for a reflective consciousness to coherently maintain that God is all good. He points to the split in the Godhead by which the darkness is projected into the devil, Satan, or something similar. This is the original totality being split into different parts by our moral consciousness. Okay, that's a hard point to swallow, but it's comprehensible 
and as I say, well defended by Young. However, near the end of the book, Young realises or remembers that there is another point of view that he himself originated. From this point of view, the archetype of the self, or that which contains the God image, is a specific archetype in the human psyche, which pushes for wholeness and integrates the other archetypes around it. It is the motor of meaning, development and growth in the psyche, the magnet around which the iron filings are attracted. But here we have what looks like a contradiction. How can the God image, or the archetype of the self, be the totality and at the same time be a specific part of that totality? If we questioned it more closely, how could the specific archetype of the self in the psyche be evil or dark? Surely, in itself, it's a movement of integration, wholeness and goodness in the psyche. So here we have a genuine difficulty and it constitutes a theological problem, as it were, in archetypal psychology. At the risk of sounding like the Catholic Church, which in answer to difficult questions replies that God is a mystery, an enigmatic answer to the above is that it is an inescapable paradox of the deity and the archetype of the self, that it appears to be the totality in the one hand and a specific component of it on the other. Next question, what impact have these thoughts in the answer to Job had on the practice of Jungian psychotherapy? Most Jungian therapists have come across answer to Job in their training. It can be a fascinating yet puzzling experience. Its direct impact upon Jungians is not obvious because of its inherent difficulty. But since it is so bound up with Jung's personality and development, at least its indirect influence must be profound. I've argued in these episodes, 73 to 79, that the roots of Jung's fascination with the book of Job in the Bible lie in his childhood. Although it was not until much later that he appreciated the work for what it was to become for him. It was therefore of great personal significance that he could identify with Job. The dual themes of God and the individuation process are leitmotifs of Jung's life. That is, like central musical motifs running throughout a symphony. Since I am also a practicing Jungian analyst and have struggled with Jung's text, I shall attempt to summarise some of the main points considering its impact on Jungian psychotherapy. 1. The importance of the shadow. The belief that evil can be integrated. The dark side of God and the human psyche are essential to psychotherapy and individuation, which is the natural growth and integration process of the psyche. 2. The role of the feminine in the psyche is central to analytical psychology. In Answer to Job, the references to the lost Sophia, the Virgin Mary, the Sun-Woman in the Book of Revelation all point to this. 3. The importance of the role of intermediary linking symbols in the tension of opposites and the movement to a new level, for example, the child archetype. 4. The archetype of the self, the centre of meaning, development, the reconciliation of opposites and the motor of individuation was Jung's discovery of the God archetype in the unconscious. This was his answer to Modern Man in Search of a Soul, the title of another well-known book. 
Five, the mythological approach to psychotherapy is a powerful tool for entering the deep psyche. Six, metaphysical ruminations lie at the base of analytical psychology. For some, that diminishes its validity. For others, like myself, it increases it. Seven, the profound importance of the God image in culture, how it shapes our view of the world, how deficiencies in the God image are critical to civilization and deeply influence the psyche of its inhabitants. For example, Yahweh's lack of eros, the feminine, relatedness and so on. Eight, the importance of recognising the opposites within the psyche. Nine, trying to be perfect or create a totally good God can produce a serious backlash. 10. The role of compensatory movements in the psyche. For example, the defecation on the cathedral dream compensates for the Christian belief that God is all good, or that John of the Apocalypse compensates for John the Apostle. 11. The importance of dreams as messengers of the self. Dreams are often condensed narratives that express the impulse deeper than the psyche, for personal growth. 12. The tendency to interpret spiritually, metaphysically, archetypally, rather than confining oneself to traditional reductionist analysis. To regard the world's spiritual literature as the deep ground underpinning the psyche is the way of thinking of archetypal psychology, or analytical psychology. To link the world's spiritual traditions to psychotherapy allows therapists to address the problems of the modern age, such as alienation. The ability to speak at different levels, as it were with different voices, gives depth to psychotherapy. 12. Young makes it clear in answer to Job that archetypes, especially the God image, the archetype of the self, is ultimately unknowable. Thus the psyche has a transcendent base. 13. The urge of the unconscious towards the light, but the resistance to it also, is frequently observed in psychotherapy and the personal development process. Therefore it should be respected, as well as understood. 14. The crises of the modern world inevitably come into the therapist's consulting room. It is important that the therapist should at least be aware of the metaphysical and archetypal dimensions to these crises. 15. Not all Jungian therapists are aware that Jung believed a nuclear apocalypse was possible, if not probable, in the post-World War II period. Likewise, not all therapists know that most of the answer to Job concerns the apocalypse, with the last five chapters devoted to the apocalypse in the modern world. Since the odds of this happening have significantly increased since the 1950s, then this book should be required reading on every Jungian and even transpersonal psychotherapy training programme. 16. The apocalypse has within itself, as does the personal crisis within psychotherapy, an individuation possibility, a growth and development possibility that we can go through consciously or unconsciously. If the former, consciously, then there can be reconciliation of opposites through uniting symbols and therefore growth. If the latter, 
unconsciously, then the apocalypse. Our next episode will be the last in this mini-series exploring Answer to Job. In it I will give a personal response to this work, pointing to some of its difficulties as well as its strengths. I will also give my views on the Book of Job of the Bible, and finally the dangers of apocalypse in our own time. I hope you can join me.